Hello, hello. So, uh, this is episode 45 of Just My Own Weave. I'm Julia, and today I'm reading for you chapter 5, and then I guess till the end of the book 1900 or The Last President by Ingersoll Lockwood. So, this time I have something to drink, so. Um, yep. If I misspell something or mispronounce something, I'm sorry. Um, but I don't know it better. So, with this, let's start with chapter 5. The pro by proclamation bearing date the 5th day of March 1897, the President summoned both Houses of Congress to convene an extraordinary session for the consideration of the general welfare of the United States and to take such action as might seem necessary and expedient to them on certain measures which he should recommend to their consideration measures of vital import to the welfare and happiness of the people, if not to the very existence of the Union and the continuance of the enjoyment of the liberties achieved by the fathers of the Republic. While awaiting the day set for the coming together of the Congress, the great friend of the common people came suddenly face to face with the ver first serious business of his administration. 50,000 people tramped the streets of Washington without bread or shelter. Many had come in quest of office, brought in by the solemn pron pr pronouncement of the candidate that there should be at once a clean sweep of these barnacles of the ship of state, and so complete had been their confidence in their glorious young captain that they had literally failed to provide themselves with either purse or script or shoes, and now stood hungry and foot-sore at his gate, begging for a crust of bread. But most of those making up this vast multitude were the unarmed warriors of peaceful armies, like the one once led by the redoubled, redoubtable Coxy Decote, Decoit, oh, okay, from farm and hamlet, and plantation by some nameless longing to go forth, to stand in the presence of this new savior of society, whose advent. Uh, to power was to bring them double pay for all their toil. Why one on the march all had gone well, for their brethren had opened their hearts and their houses as these unarmed warriors had marched with flying banners and loud huzzas through the various towns on the route. But now the holiday was over, they were far from the homes, they were in danger of perishing from hunger. What was to be done? They are our people, said the president. The love of the country has undone them. The nation must not let them suffer, for they are its hope and its shield in the hour of war, and its glory and its refuge in times of peace. They are the common people for whose benefit this republic was established. The kings of the earth may desert them, I never shall. 
the Secretary of War, who was directed to establish camps in the parks and suburbs of the city, and to issue rations and blankets to these luckless wanderers until the government could provide their transportation back to their homes. On Monday, March 15th, the President received the usual notification from both Houses of Congress that they had organized and were ready for the consideration of such measures as he might choose to recommend for their action. The first act to pass both houses and receive the signature of the president was an act repealing the act of 1873 and opening the mines, the mints of the United States to the free coinage of silver at the ratio of 16 to 1 with gold in establishing branch mints in the cities of Denver, Omaha, Chicago, Kansas City, Spokane, Los Angeles, Charleston and Mobile. The announcement that reparation had thus been made to the people for the crime of 1873 was received with loud cheering on the floors and in the galleries of both houses. And the Great North heard that these cheers and trembled. The next measure of great public import brought before the House was an act to provide additional revenue by levying a tax upon the incomes substantially on the lines laid down by the legislation of 1894. The Republican senators strove to make some show of resistance to this measure, but so solid were the administration ranks that they only succeeded in delaying it for a few weeks. This first skirmish with the animal, however, brought the president and his followers to a realizing sense that not only must the Senate be shorn of its power to block the new movement of regeneration and reform by the adoption of rules cutting off prolonged debate, but that the new dispensation must at once proceed to increase its senatorial representation, for who could tell what moment some one on the northern silver states might not slip away from its allegiance to the friend of the common people. The introduction of a bill repealing the various civil service acts passed for the alleged purpose of regulating and improving the civil service of the United States, and of other repealing the various acts establishing national banks and substituting United States notes for all national banknotes based upon interest-bearing bonds opened the eyes of the Republican opposition to the fact that the President and his party were possessed of the courage of their convictions and were determined come good report or evil report to wipe all conflicting legislation, legisl legislation from the statue, statute books. The battle in the Senate now took on a spirit of extreme acrimony. Scenes not witnessed since the days of slavery were of daily occurrence on the floors of both the House and the Senate. Threats of secession came openly from the North only to be met with the jeers and laughter of the silver and populist members. We are in the saddle at last, exclaimed a southern member, and we intend to ride on to victory. The introduction of bills for the admission of New Mexico and Arizona, and for the division of Texas into two states to be called East Texas and West Texas, 
Also, each of these measures was strictly within the letter of the Constitution, fell among the members of the Republican opposition like a torch in a house of tinder. There was fire at once, and the blaze of party spirit leaped to such dangerous heights that the whole nation looked on in consternation. Was the Union about to go up in a great conflagration and leave behind it but the ashes and charred pedestals of its greatness? We are the people, wrote the President in lines of dignity and calmness. We are the people, and what we do, we do under the holy sanction of law. And there is no one so powerful or so bold as to dare to say we do not do well in lifting off the nation's shoulders the grievous and unlawful burdens which preceding congresses have placed upon them. And so the long session of the 55th Congress was entered upon, fated to last through summer heat and autumn chill, and until winter came again and the Constitution itself set limits to its lasting. And when that day came, and its speaker amid a wide tumult of cheers, arose to declare it and ended not by their will, but by the law of the land, he said, The glorious revolution is in its brightest bud. Since the president called upon us to convene in last March, we have with a strong blade of public indignation and with a full sense of our responsibility, erased from the statute books the marks of our country's shame on and our people's subjugation. Liberty cannot die. There remains much to be done in the way of building up. Let us take heart and push on. On Monday, the regular session of this Congress will begin. We must greet our loved ones from the distance. We have no time to go home and embrace them. Chapter 6 When a Republican member of the House arose to move the usual adjournment for the holidays, there was a storm of hisses and cries of No, no, said the leader of the House, amid deafening plaudits. We are the servants of the people. Our work is not yet complete. There must be no play for us while cold barons stand with their feet on the ashes of the poor man's hearthstones and weeds and thorns cumber the fields of the farmer for lack of money to buy seed and implements. There must be no play for us why railway magnates press from the pockets of the laboring men six and eight per cent. Return on thrice watered stocks and rapacious landlords enriched by inheritance grind the faces of the poor. There must be no play for us while enemies of the humankind are by means of trust and combination and corners engaged in drawing their unholy millions from the very lifeblood of the nation, paralyzing its best efforts and setting the blight of intemperance and indifference upon it, by making life but one long struggle for existence, without a gleam of rest and comfort in old age. No, Mr. Speaker, we must not adjourn. But by our efforts in these halls of legislation, let the nation know that we are at work for its emancipation, and by these means, let the monopolists and money changers be brought to realization, send that the reign of the common people has really been entered upon, and then the bells will ring up 
bring out a happier, gladder, gladder new year than has ever dawned upon the Republic. The opposition fairly quailed, but the vigor and earnestness of the new dispensation there were soon before the house and press well untoward final passage a number of important measures calculated to awaken an intense feeling of enthusiasm among the working classes. Among these was an act establishing a loan commission for the loaning of certain monies of the United States to farmers and planters without interest, an act for the establishment of a permanent department of the public works. Its head to be styled Secretary of Public Works, rank as a cabinet officer, and supervise the expenditure of all public monies for the construction of public buildings and the improvement of rivers and harbors, an act making it a felony punishable with imprisonment for life for any citizen or combination of citizens to enter into any trust or agreement to stifle, suppress, or in any way interfere with full, open, and fair competition in trade and manufacture among the states, or to make use of any interstate railroads, waterways, or canals or for the transportation of any food products or goods, wares or merchandise, which may have been cornered, stored or withheld with a view to enhance the value thereof. And, most important of all, a preliminary act having for its object the appointment of commissioners for the purchase by the federal government of all interstate railways or telegraph lines, and, in the meantime, the strict regulation of all fares and charges by a government commission, from whose established schedules there shall be no appeal. On Washington's birthday, the president issued an Address of congratulation to the people of the United States, from which the following is extracted. The malicious prognostications of our political opponents have proven themselves to be but empty, sound and fury. Also, not quite one year has elapsed since I, agreeable to your mandate, restored to you the money of the Constitution. Yet, from every section of our Union comes the glad tidings of the renewed activity and prosperity. The working man no longer sits cold and hungry beside a cheerless hearthstone. The farmer has taken heart and summoned work. The wheels of the factory are in motion again. The shops and stores of the legitimate dealer and trader are full of bustle and action. There is content everywhere, save in the counting room of the money changer for which, thank God, and the common people of this republic, the free coinage of that metal which the Creator in his wisdom stored with so lavish a hand in the subterranean vaults of our glorious mountain ranges, has proven a rich and manifold blessing for our people. It is in every sense of the word the people's money, and already the envious world looks on an amazement that we have shown our ability to do without foreign cooperation. The Congress of our Republic has been an almost continuous session since I took my oath of office, and the administration members deserve your deepest and most heartfelt gratitude. They are re rearing for themselves a monument more lasting than chiseled, bronze or polished monolith. They knew no rest, 
they asked for no respite from their labors until, at my earnest request, they adjourned over to join their fellow citizens in the observance of the sacred anniversary. Fellow citizens, remember the bonds which a wicked and selfish class of usurers and speculators fastened upon you. And on this anniversary of the birth of the father of our country, let us renew our pledges to undo completely and absolutely their infamous work. And in public assembly and family circle, let us by new votes confirm our love of right and justice, so that the great gain may not slip away from us but go on increasing so long as the statute books contain a single trace of the record of our enslavement. As for me, I have but one ambition, and that is to deserve so well of you what that when you come to write my epitaph, you set beneath my name the single line, Here lies a friend of the common people. Just a sip of water. Okay, let's continue with chapter 7. This first year of civil administration was scarcely rounded up. Ere there began to be ugly rumors that the government was no longer able to hold the white metal at a parity with gold. It is the work of the Wall Street, cried the friends of the president. But wiser heads were shaken in contradiction for they had watched the sowing of the wind of unreason, and knew only too well that the whirlwind of fo folly must be re reaped in due season. The country had been literally submerged by a silver flood which had poured its argent waves into every nook and cranny of the Republic, stimulating human endeavour to most unnatural and harmful vigour. Mad speculation stalked over the land. People sold what they should have clung to and bought what they did not need. Manufacturers heaped up goods for which there was no demand and farmers ploughed where they had not, not drained and drained um, where they were never fated to plough. The small dealer enlarged his business with more haste than judgment and the widow drew her might from the bank of savings to buy land on which she was destined never to set foot. The spirit of greed and gain lodged in every mind, and the common people, with a mad eagerness, loosened in the strings of their leather purse purses to cast their hard-earned savings into wild schemes of profit. Every scrap and bit of the white matter that they should lay their hands upon. Spoons hallowed by the touch of lips long since closed in death, and cups and tankards from which grand sires had drunken were bundled away to the mints to be coined into. People's dollars. At the very first rumor of the slipping away of this trusted coin from its parity with gold, there was a fearful awakening, like the start of the gasp of the miser, who sees his hoarded treasure melting away from before his eyes and he not able to reach out and stay its going. Protest and expostulation first, then came groans and prayers from which there was an easy road to curses. 
The working man threw off his cap and a prone to rush upon the public square and demand his rights. Mobs ran together, processions formed, deputations hurried off to Washington. Not on foot, like the Coxy army, but on the swift wings of a limited express. The common people were admitted to the bar of the house, their planes patiently listened to, and reparation promised. Bills for increased revenue were hurriedly introduced, and new taxes were loaded upon the broad shoulders of the millionaires of the nation. Taxes on checks, taxes on certificates of incorporation, taxes on deeds and mortgages, taxes on pleasure yachts, taxes on private parks and pleasances, taxes on wills of all property above $5,000 in value, taxes on all gifts of reality for in consideration of natural love and affection, taxes on all passage tickets to foreign lands and double taxes on the estates of all absentees on and after the lapse of six months. There was a doubling up to a of up to of the tariff on all important luxuries, for as was said on the floor of Congress, if the silks and satins of American looms and the wines and tobacco of native growth are not good enough for my lord of Wall Street, let him pay the difference and thank heaven that he can get them at that price. To quiet the murmurs of the good people of the land, additional millions were placed to the credit of Department of Public Works, and harbors were dredged out in one month only to fill up in the next, and new systems of improvement of interstate waterways were entered upon on a scale of magnitude, hitherto undreamt of. The commissioners for the distribution of public monies to farmers so impoverished as to be unable to work their lands were kept busy in placing pepper loans, where the need of them seemed to be the greatest and to put a stop to the nefarious doings of money changers and traders and the misfortunes of the people, a statute was enacted, making it a felony punishable with imprisonment for life, for any person or corporate body to buy and sell government bonds or public funds, or deal in them with a view to draw gain or profit from their rise and fall in value. But try never so hard, the government found itself powerless to check the slow but steady decline in value of the people's dollar. By midsummer it had fallen to 43 cents, and uh, the fair Northland had wrapped itself like a scornful beauty in its autumn mantle of gold. The fondly trusted coin had sunk to exactly one-third of the value of a standard gold dollar. People carried baskets in their arms, filled with a now discredited coin, when they went abroad to pay a debt or make a purchase of the necessaries of life. View sacks of the white metal were flung at the door of the mortgagee when discharge was sought for a few thousand dollars. Men, servants accompanied their mistresses upon shopping tours to carry the necessary funds, and leather pockets took the place of the old-time muslin 
once in male, happily means least the weight of the 15 coins required to make up a $5 gold piece, should tear the thin stuff and spill a dollar at every step. All day long, in the large cities, huge trucks loaded with sacks of the coin rolled and rumbled over the pavement in the adjustment of the business balances of the day. The tradesman who called for his bill was met at the door with a cold scuttle or a nail cake filled with a needful amount on end on payday. The working man took his eldest boy with him to tote the stuff home. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, while he carried the usual bundle of firewood. And strange to say, this dollar once so beloved by the common people parted with its very nature of riches and lay in heaps, unnoticed and unheeded on shelf or table, until occasion arose to pay it out, which was done with a careless and a contemptuous toss as if it were the iron money of the ancient Spartans. And holy writ, for once at least, was disproven and discredited for the thief, showed not the slightest inclination to break in and steer, where the, these treasures had been laid up on earth. Also the dis discs of white metal might lie in full view on the table, like so many pewter platters or pieces of tinware. Men let debts run, rather than call for them, and barter and exchange came into vogue again. The good housewife calling on her neighbor for a loan or floor or meal, promising to return the same in sugar or dried fruit whenever the need might arise. And still the once magic disc of silver slipped slowly and silently downward and over downward in <coughs> value and good name until it almost seemed as if the people hated the very name of silver. <coughs> Chapter 8 The Fateful Year of 99 Opponents coming in found the Republic of Washington in dire and dangerous straits. The commercial and industrial boom had spent its force, and now the frightful evils of a debased currency, coupled with demoralizing effects of rampant paternalism, were gradually strangling the land to death. Capital, ever timid and distrustful, in such times, hid itself in safe deposit vaults or fled to Europe. Labor, also really hard-pressed and lacking the very necessities of life, was loud-mouthed and defiant. Socialism and anarchism found willing ears into which to pour their burning words of hatred and malevolence. Malevolence? And the consequence was the serious rioting broke out in the larger cities of the north often taxing the capacities of the local authorities to the utmost. It was bruited abroad that violent dissensions had arisen in the cabinet, the young president giving signs of a marked change of mind, and like many a man who has appealed to the darker passions of the human heart, he seemed almost ready to exclaim, I stand alone, the spirits I have called up are no longer obedient to me. My country, oh, my country, how willingly would I give my life for thee, if by such a sacrifice I could restore thee to thy old-time prosperity. 
For the first, he began to realize what an intense spirit of sectionalism had entered into this revolutionary propaganda. He spoke of his fears to none save to his wise and prudent helpmate. I trust you, beloved, she whispered, as she pressed the broad, strong hands that held her and clasped. Aye, dear one, but does my country? came an almost a groan from the lips of the youthful ruler. Most evident was it that thus far the Thouse had been the great gainer in this struggle for power. She had increased her strength in the Senate by six votes. She had regained her old-time prestige in the House. One of her most trusted sons was in the Speaker's chair, while another brilliant Southron led to the administration forces on the floor. Born as she was for the brilliant exercise of intellectual vigor, the South was of that strain of blood which knows how to wear the kingly graces of power so as best to impress the common people. Many of the men of the North had been charmed and fascinated by this natural pomp and inborn demeanor of greatness and had yielded to it. Not a month had gone by that this now dominant section had not made some new demand upon the country at large. Early in the session, at its request, the internal revenue tax which had rested so long upon the tobacco crop of the South and poured so many millions of revenue into the national security was wiped from the statute books with but a feeble protest from the North. But now the country was thrown into a state bordering upon frenzy. By a new demand, which also couched in calm and de decorous terms, nigh, almost in the guise of a petition for long-delayed justice, to hard-pressed and suffering brethren, had about it a suppressed, unmistakable tone of unconscious, of conscious power. And imperiousness, which well became the leader, who spoke for that glorious Southland to which this union owes so much of its greatness and its prestige. Said he, Mr. Speaker, for nearly thirty years our people, also left impoverished by the conflict of the states, have given off their substance to salve the wounds and make green the old age of the man who conquered us. We have paid this heavy tax, this fearful blood money unmurmuringly unmurmuringly you have forgiven us for our bold strike for liberty that god willed should not succeed you have given us back our rights opened the doors of this these sacred halls to us called us your brothers but unlike noble germany who was content to exact a lump sum from la belle france and then bid her go in peace and freedom from all further exactions you have for nearly thirty years laid this humiliating war tax upon us, and thus forced us year in and year out to kiss the very hand that smote us. Are we human that we know now cry out against it? Are we men that we feel no tingle in our veins after these long years of punishment for no greater crime? than that we love liberty better than the bonds of a confederation laid upon us by your fathers by our fathers we appeal to you as our brothers and our countrymen lift this infamous text from our land 
then which your great north is ten thousand times richer. Do one of those two things. Either take our aged and decrepit soldiers by the hand and bless their last days with pensions from the treasury of our common country, for they were only wrong in that their cause failed, or remove this hated tax and make such restitution of this blood money as shall seem just and equitable to your so soberer and better judgment. To say that this speech of which the foregoing is but a brief extract through both houses of Congress. Into most violent disorder but faintly describes its effect. Cries of treason, treason, went up. Blows ex were exchanged and hand-to-hand -hand struggles took place in the galleries followed by the flash of the dread bowie and the crack of the ready pistol. The Republic was shaken to its very foundations. Throughout the North there was but a repetition of the scenes that followed the firing upon Sumter. Public meetings were held and the resolutions passed calling upon the government to concentrate troops in and about Washington and prepare for the suppression of a second rebellion. But gradually, this outbreak of popular indignation lost some of its strength and virulence, for it was easy to comprehend that nothing would be gained at this stage of the matter by meeting a violent and unlawful demand with violent and unwise counsels. Besides, what was it anyway but the idle threat of a certain clique of unscrupulous politicians? The Republic stood upon too firm a foundation to be shaken by mere appeals to the passion of the hour. The commit treason against our country called for an overt act. What had it to dread from the mere oratorical flesh <coughs> of a passing storm of feeling? It is hard to say that the young president thought of these scenes in Congress. So pale had he grown of late that a little more of pallor would pass unnoted. But those who were wont to look upon his face in these troublous times report that in the short space of a few days lines in his countenance deepened perceptibly, and that a firmer and stronger expression of willpower lurked into the corners of his wide mouth, overhung his square and massive chin and accentuated the vibrations of his wide-opened nostrils. He was under a terrible strain. When he had caught up the scepter of power, it seemed a mere bauble in his strong grasp, but now it had grown strangely heavy, and there was a mysterious pricking at his brow, as if that crown of thorns, which he had not willed, should be set upon the heads of others were being pressed down with cruel hands upon his own. <coughs> Chapter 9 When the last embers of the great conflagration of the rebellion had been smothered out with tears for the lost cause, a prophecy had gone up that the mighty north, rich with a hundred great cities, and strong in the conscious power of its wide empire would be the next to raise the standard of rebellion against the federal government but that prophet was without honor in his own land and none had paid heed to his seemingly wild words yet now 
the same mighty North sat there in her grief and anxiety, with her face turned outward and her ears strained to catch the whispers that were in the air. Had not the scepter of power passed from her hand forever? Was not the revolution complete? Were not the populists and their allies firmly seated in the halls of Congress? Had not the Supreme Court been rendered powerless for good by packing it with the most uncompromising adherents of the new political faith? Had not the very nature of the federal government undergone a change? Was not paternalism rampant? Was not socialism on the increase? Were there not everywhere evidences of an intense hatred of the North and a firm determination to throw the whole burden of taxation upon the shoulders of the rich man in order that the surplus revenues of the government might be distributed among those who constitute the common people? How could this section of the Union ever hope to make head against the South, united as it now was with the rapidly growing states of the Northwest? Could the magnificent cities of the North content themselves to march at the tail of Tillman's and Pepper's chariots? Had not the South a firm hold of the Senate? Where was the, their array of hope that the North could never again regain its lost power? And could it, for a single moment, think of an entrusting its vast interest to the hands of a people differing with them? on every uh, important question of statecraft, pledged to a policy that could not be otherwise than ruinous to the welfare of the grand commonwealth of the middle and eastern sections of the Union and their sister states, the site of, of the Mississippi, if it were madness to think of it. The plunge must be taken, the declaration must be made, there was no other alternative safe abject submission to the chieftains of the new dispensation and the complete transformation of that vast social and political system vaguely called the north but this revolution within a revolution would be a bloodless one for there could be no thought of co coercion no serious notion of checking such a mighty movement It would be in reality the true republic purging itself of a dangerous malady, sloughing off a diseased and gangrened member, no more, no less. Already this mighty movement of withdrawals from the wit wittenage mode of the un Union was in the air. People spoke of it in a whisper, or with bated breath but as they turned it over and over in their minds it took an on shape and form and force till at last it burst into life and action like minerva from jupiter's brain full-fledged full-armed full-voiced and full-hearted really why would it not be all for the best that this mighty empire rapidly growing so vast and unwieldy as to be only with the greatest difficulty governable from a single center should be split into three parts eastern southern and western now that it may be done without dangerous jar or friction the three rep republics could be federated to pur purposes offensive and defensive and until these great and radical changes could be brought 
about there would be no great difficulty in devising living terms. Immediately upon the declaration of dissolution, each state would become repossessed of the sovereign powers which it had delegated to the federal government. Meanwhile, the fateful year 99 went onward towards its close. The whole land seemed stricken with paralysis so far as the various industries were concerned, but as it is wont, as it is wont be in such times. Men's minds were supernaturally active. The days were passed in the reading of public prints or in passing in review the weighty events of the hour. The North was only waiting for an opportunity to act. But the question that perplexed the wisest heads was how and when shall the declaration of dissolution be made? And how soon thereafter shall the North and the States in sympathy with her withdraw from the Union and declare to the world the intention to set up a republic of their own, with the mighty metropolis of New York as its social, political and commercial center and capital. As it came to pass, the North had not long to wait. The 56th Congress soon to convene in regular session in the city of Washington was even more populistic and socialistic than its famous predecessors, which had wrought such wonderful changes in the law of the land, showing no respect for precedent, no reference for the old order of things. Hence all eyes were fixed upon the capital of the nation, all roads were untrodden, save those which led to Washington. Chapter 10 Again, Congress had refused to adjourn over for the holidays. The leaders of the administration forces were unwilling to close their eyes, even for needful sleep, and went about pale and haggard, startled at, at every word and gesture of the opposition, like true conspirators. As they were, for the federal troops had been almost to a man quietly removed from the capital and its vicinage, lest the pre president in a moment of weakness might do or suffer to be done some act unfriendly to the reign of the common people. Strange as it may seem, there had been very little note taken by the country at large of the introduction at the opening of the session of an act to extend the pension system of the United States to the soldiers of the Confederate armies and for covering back into the various treasuries of certain states of the Union. Such portions of internal revenue taxes collected since the readmission of said states to the Federal Congress, as may be determined by commissioners duly appointed under said act. Was it the calm of the despair, the stolidity and desperation, or the cool and restrained energy of a noble and refined courage? The introduction of the act, however, had one effect. It is set in motion toward the national capital mighty streams of humanity, not of wild-eyed fanatics or unshaven and uncapped politicasters and bisonians, but of soberly clad citizens with a business like air about them, evidently men who knew how to earn more than enough for a living, men who paid their taxes and had a right to take a look at the public servants, if dispersed, to move them. 
but very plain was it that the mightier stream flowed in from the south. And those who remembered the capital in antebellum, antebellum days smiled at the old familiar sight. The clean-shaven faces, the long hair thrown carelessly back under the broad brim felts, the half-unbuttoned waistcoats and turned-down collars, the small feet and neatly fitting boots, the springy looping pace with soft negris intonation, the long fragrant sheer route. It was easy to pick out the men <coughs> from the Northland, well-clad and well-groomed, as careful of his linen as a woman, prim and trim, disdainful of the picturesque fells ever crowned with a ceremonious derby, the man of affairs, taking a business-like view of life, but wearing for the nonce, of, nonce a worried look and drawing ever and anon a deep breath. The black man, ever at the heels of his white brother, set to rule over him, by an inscrutable decree of nature, came forth two in thousands, chatting and laughing gaily, careless of the why or wherefore of his white brother's deep concern and powerless to comprehend it, had he so desired, every hour now added to the throng, the broad and avenues were none too broad. The excitement increased. Men talked louder and louder. Women and children disappeared almost completely from the streets. The southern element drew more and more apart in knots and groups by itself. Men threw themselves upon their beds to catch a few hours sleep, but without undressing, as if they were expecting the happening of some portentous event at any moment. The event of their lives and dreaded the thought of being a moment late if all went well the bill would come up for final passage on saturday the thirtieth day of the month but so fierce was the battle raged against it and so frequent the interruptions by the contumacy both of members and of the various cliques crowding the galleries to suffocating that little or no progress could be made the leaders of administration forces saw that midnight drawing near with no prospect of attaining their object before the coming in of Sunday on which this house had never been known to sit. An adjournment, adjournment, um, an adjournment over the Monday, over to Monday of the new year might be fatal. For who could tell what an unforeseen force might not break up their solid ranks and throw them into confusion? There must rise equal to the occasion. A motion was made to suspend the rules and to remain in continuous, continuous session until the business before the house was completed. Cries of the unprecedented, revolutionary, monstrous came from the opposition, but all to no purpose. The house settled down to its work with such a grim determination to conquer that the Republican minority fairly quailed before it. Food and drink were brought to the members in their seats. They ate, drank, and slept at the posts, like soldiers determined not to be ambushed, ambushed or stamped it. It was a strange sight, and yet an impressive one, withal, a great party struggling for long-deferred rights, 
supreme and jealous of their liberties, bound together with the steel hooks of determination that only death might break asunder. Sunday came in at last, and still the struggle went on. The people now know days when their liberties are at stake, cried the leader of the house. The Sabbath was made for men and not men for the Sabbath. Men of the speeches delivered on that famous Sunday sounded more like the lamentations of a Jeremiah, the earnest and burning utterances of a Paul, or the scholarly uh, and well-rounded periods of an Apollos. The weary hours were lightened by the singing by hum by hymns of hymns by the southern members, most of them good Methodists, in which their friends and sympathizers in the galleries joined full-throated and full, fuller-hearted, while at times clear, resonant, and in perfection, perfect unison, the voices of the staunch men of the north broke in and droned out the religious song with the majestic and soul-stirring measures of John Brown's body, the glory, glory, hallelujah of which seemed to hush the tumult of the chamber like a weird chant of some invisible chorus breaking in upon the fierce rioting of a Belshazzar feast. Somewhat after eleven o'clock, an ominous silence sank upon the opposing camps. The Republican leaders could be seen conferring together, nervously. It was a sacred hour of night, thrice sacred for the great Republic, not only a new year, but a new century was about to break upon the world. A strange hush crept over the turbulent house and its still more turbulent galleries. The Republican leader rose to his feet. His voice sounded cold and hollow. Strong men shivered as they listened. Mr. Speaker, we have done our duty to our country. We have nothing more to say, no more blows to strike. We cannot stand here within the sacred precincts of this chamber and see our rights as freemen trampled beneath the feet of the majority. We have striven to prevent the downfall of the Republic, like men sworn to battle against wrong and tyranny. But there comes a time when blank despair seizes upon the hearts of those who struggle against overwhelming odds. That hour has sounded for us. We believe our people, the great and generous people of the North, will cry unto us. Well done, good and faithful servants. If we do wrong, let them condemn us. We, every man of us, Mr. Speaker, have but this moment sworn not to stand within this chamber and witness the passage of this act. Therefore, we go. Not so, my countrymen, cried a clear, metallic, far-reaching voice that sounded through the chamber with an almost supernatural ring in it. In an instant every head was turned and a thousand voices burst out with suppressed force. The president! The president! In truth it was he standing at the bar of the house wearing the visage of death rather than of life. The next instant the house and galleries burst into a deafening clamor which rolled up and back in mighty waves. That shook the very walls. There was no stilling in it, stilling it. Again and again it burst forth with the mingly, the mingly, mingling, oh, the mingling of ten thousand words, howling, rumbling, and groaning like the whirring elements of nature. 
Several times the president stretched forth his great white hands, appealing for silence, while the dew of mingled dread and anguish bedded on his brow and trickled down his cheeks in liquid supplication that his people might either slay him or listen to him. The tumult stilled in its fury for a moment, and he could be heard saying brokenly, My countrymen, oh my countrymen. But the quick sharp sound of the gavel cut him short. The president must withdraw, said the speaker calmly and coldly. This pre his presence here is a menace to our free deliberation. Again the tumult set up its deafening roar while a look of almost horror overspread the countenance of the chief magistrate. Once more his great white hands went heavenward, pleading for silence with such a mute majesty of supplication that silence fell upon the immense assemblage, and his lips moved not in vain. Gentlemen of the House of Representatives, I stand here upon my just and lawful right as President of the Republic, to give you information of the state of the union i have summoned the honorable the senate to meet me in this chamber i call upon you to calm your passions to calm your passions and give ear to me as your oath of office sets a sacred obligation upon you there was a tone of godlike authority in these few words almost divine enough to make the winds obey and still the temperature cease cease in deepest silence, and with a certain show of rude and native grandeur of bearing, the senators made their entrance into the chamber, the members of the house rising and the speaker advancing to meet the vice-president. The spectacle was grand and moving. Tears gathered in eyes long unused to them, and at an almost imperceptible nod of the president's head, the chaplain raised his voice in prayer. He prayed in essence, accents that were so gentle and so persuasive they must have turned the hardest heart to blessed thoughts of peace and love and fraternity and union. And then again all eyes were fixed with in intensest strain upon the face of the President. Gentlemen of the House of Representatives, this measure upon which you are now deliberating with a sudden blow that startled every living soul with, within its hearing, the speaker's gavel fell. The president said he with a superb dignity that called down from the galleries a burst of deafening applause. Must not make reference to pending legislation. The constitution guarantees him the right from time to time to give to the congress information of the union. He must keep himself strictly within the lines of this constitutional limit, or withdraw from the bar of the house. A deadly pallor overspread the face of the chief magistrate, till it seemed he must sink then and there into that sleep which knows no awakening, but he gasped. He leaned forward, he raised his hand again imploringly, and as he did so, the bells of the city began to toll the hour of midnight. The new year the new chantry was born, but with the last stroke a fearful and thunderous discharge as of a thousand monster pieces of artillery shook the capital to its very foundations, making the stoutest hearts 
stand still and blanching cheeks that had never known the coward color. The dome of the capital had been destroyed by dynamite. In a few moments, when it was seen that the chamber had suffered no harm, <coughs> the leader of the house moved the final passage of the act. The president was led away and the Republican senators and representatives passed slowly out of the disfigured capital, while the tellers prepared to take the vote of the house. The bells were ringing a glad welcome to the new gentry, but a solemn tolling would have been a fitter thing, for the Republic of Washington was no more. It had died so peacefully that the world could not believe the tidings of its passing away. As the dawn broke, cold and grey, and its first dim light fell upon that shattered dome, glorious even in its ruins, the single human eye, filled with the gleam of the village joy, looked up at it long and steadily, and then its owner was caught up and lost in the surging mass of humanity that held the capital girt round and round. Okay, so that was the whole book, 1900 or the last president. Um, yeah, the second reading is a little bit longer than I <coughs> wanted it to be, but I hope you enjoy and you can actually follow the whole story, even when I have my... Uh, yeah, misinterpretations or whatever you find. Okay, with this, um, I wish you a happy day. And I'm absolutely sure that you will hear from me soon. So, bye-bye.